You've heard the expression, just the tip of the iceberg? Yeah. Look at this iceberg. Oh. You see what the tip is? Wow. See how tremendously big it goes? Look at that. Wow. See that? Look the tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. When I think you can see the tip of the yeah, iceberg. Yeah. When I think of a radio outreaching factor, I think of an iceberg. Uh, it goes out in a tremendous way. Impacto uh, goes out uh, every day in 22 countries, over 310 stations in South America, Central America, North America, the Caribbean, Europe, and even Africa in a Spanish speaking country there. And we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. All of these millions of listeners there every day. We receive letters, we hear about lives changed. And yet I know it's just the tip of the iceberg. And to me, that's very challenging. Yeah. And uh, I have a list of the countries where we broadcast Impacto, or 15 minutes Spanish broadcast. And I'm going to read them to you again in Spanish, and you will repeat in English. Okay? <laughs> First one is Argentina. Argentina. Uruguay, Uruguay. Uruguay. Costa, Rica. Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico. Honduras, Honduras. Ecuador. Ecuador, Nicaragua, Nicaragua. Guatemala. Guatemala, Guinea Equatorial. What? That's the African country, Equatorial Guinea. <laughs> La República Dominicana. You got it? Panama. Bolivia, Bolivia, México, Venezuela, 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 los Estados Unidos de Norteamérica, United States, Belice, Colombia, Paraguay, Perú, Chile, Aruba, España, Spain, El Salvador, which means the savior. They recently changed the currency to cryptocurrency. But as a country, I can't believe it, how they're going to manage that. It's so volatile. I don't even know much about it. Well, a husband dies, and he only had $20,000 to his name. So after everything was done at the funeral home and the cemetery, the wife tells her closest friend that there is no money left. And the friend says, how can this be? You told me that he still had $20,000 just a few days before he died. How could he be, how could you be broke? Well, the widow said, well, the funeral home cost me $6,000. And of course, I had to make an obligatory donation to the church. That was another $2,000. The rest went for the memorial stone. The friend says, $12,000 for the memorial stone. It must have been huge. And the widow said, three carats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a look at the biblical stones now. I love Joshua. And I'm going to read this from Joshua 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, 12, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down in the place where you stay tonight. Each one of you is to take a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. 
In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Twelve stones, very meaningful for the tribe of Israel. And I'm going to talk to you about some memorial stones in my life that are very, very meaningful to me. And I'm sure each one of you can think of certain stones in your life that are served a great memory to you. Uh, the first one for me uh, was in 1986. My mother, bless her heart, she's in heaven now. But in 1986, her Christmas present to me was a 54-page biography of our background. And I learned that my, my great-grandfather came over from Germany in the mid-1800s. <coughs> How many people do you have from German accent? Yeah, German blood, blood here. Okay. <laughs> we wish you more. So my great-grandfather came from Germany in the mid-1800s for two reasons. He didn't want to be inscripted into the Prussian army, number one. Number two, he wanted to get in in the USA Industrial Revolution. My grandfather, on the other side, uh, was born on the boat coming over from Sweden in, eight, in the late 1800s. His name was Wiedmann, and it didn't go well in the United States, so he changed it to Woodman, and that didn't go in well in Latin America, so I changed it to Del Monte. And in Latin America, I know it's Del Monte. So that was a mile milestone in my life when my mother presented that Christmas present, a 54-page biography. My next milestone was to be born in the city of Joliet, Illinois. Joliet is known for two things, two reasons. Someone gave me a full-page uh, copy of the Chicago Tribune on the day of my birth, and it was all about Al Capone. He ruled Chicago for a good while. Joliet was the place where Al Capone was put away in Stateville, in State Penitentiary. Joliet was also known for the, the band system, the, the school band system there. And it started way back in the 1920s. A man by the name of J.R. McAllister uh, taught crafts and woodshop, and they met students like this. But his first love was music. And he was a good friend of John Philip Sousa, the March King. That's the class of musician he was. So in the manual arts studio there, he started the Joliet Band. But within a few years, it was so good. They had won so many national contests that they were prohibited from competing for a while to give the others a chance. <laughs> That's the atmosphere in Joliet and the band system. Now, you ladies won't like this at all. But one of the reasons that the high school band and the grade school band were so good is no girls were allowed. <laughs> My wife doesn't like that. <laughs> no girls were allowed. But in a certain sense, it's good because uh, the band director never had to think about discipline. Never. It was in charge of the seniors in the class. If someone was out of line during rehearsal, they'd call him back and they'd take him in the instrument room. And there they would lay him across the big bass drum and each of the seniors would pull off his belt and they'd give him a good <laughs> whack, you know where. He never disturbed the rehearsal after that. The band director never had to think about it. Well, we rehearsed an hour and a half every day and then would eat afterwards in high school. So on Thursdays, we spent all one hour and a half sight reading music. We had access to the big land healing music library in Chicago. 
they would send us anything. We wanted to keep it, we could send it back. Dr. Bennett, a great band arranger and composer, always brought his manuscripts to us to read before he published them. So we had good, but the way to learn how music is to read it. You read it and read it and read it. And I had the good fortune of winning several state championships on the baritone horn. Now I've gone down in size to the trombone. But Joliet was the second milestone. My third milestone was at the age of 16, when through the testimony of a bunch of high schoolers, I received the Lord. The best milestone of my life. <laughs> and I started asking, what does God want of me? Just what does he want? Well, the next milestone came when I was a senior in high school. I don't know how he picked me, but the band director picked me. The US Navy band, the one stationed in Washington, DC, was on tour, presenting concerts all over the United States. And my band director picked me. I don't know why, because there are other band members who were far superior to me. But he picked me, and I went and I played with the United States Navy Band in Kankakee, Illinois, on Sunday afternoon in a concert. Oh, it was just fantastic. Yeah. I played, sat there with the other euphonium baritone players. And the first chair baritone player, Harold Brosh, was the best in the world. He gave lessons to the guys in the Marine Band. It was such an honor to be seated by him. And uh, I was just enthralled. Well, afterwards, I, I spoke to Harold Brosh and I said, how is it that a young man can become a member of the United States Navy Band? He said, whatever you do, don't, don't join the Navy. They'll send you some, some little band on an aircraft carrier. The way to do it is you have to audition in Washington, D.C. But we had such a good life. We rehearsed all morning long. We played for state events. We have to have afternoons free. It's so good here that you really have to wait until someone dies or retired in the baritone section. So I said, could we correspond? I said, sure. And I went away that afternoon praying that someone would die or, re or retire. <laughs> Lo and behold, just as I graduated from, from high school, and I used to practice five hours a day. I told Pete, I, I can't play more than two numbers today. I haven't practiced much lately. I used to practice five hours a day. I had received a letter from Harold Brosh. He said, guess what? Someone just retired in the baritone section. If you'd like, I'll set up an audition with the director, and you can come out here and see what happens. So I said, you bet. And I went out to Washington, D.C. I met with the director of the band. I played some of the state solo contests that I had won. He had me sight read a good bit. I played for about a half hour. And finally he said, well, young man, I think we can use you in the United States Navy band. Wow. Go next door and start signing up with the Omen. So I started the paperwork. 4.30 quitting time came. The Omen was not going to work overtime. So he said, you're not in yet. Come on back tomorrow morning. I said, I'll see you tomorrow morning. I went to my motel and I thanked the Lord. I knelt down on the bed. I thanked him so much for this fantastic opportunity, the dream of my lifetime. But a funny thing happened. The longer I prayed, the more miserable I felt. And sometimes I can be a little hard-headed. Just ask my wife. <laughs> it took two hours for God to get through to me. And I finally got the message. I got his memo. He didn't want me in the United States Navy van. I said, okay, Lord, I have no idea what you have in mind, but whatever you say. I never went back to the, the next morning to fill out papers. Instead, I didn't have much money. I hitchhiked home to Joliet, Illinois. <laughs> and I got there and I wrote a letter to Harold Brosh, and I said, I don't expect you to understand this, but 
I belong to the Lord, and for some reason, he does not want me with the United States Navy Band. He finally letter back to me and he said, I understand more than you can imagine. I too belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if God doesn't want you here, we sure don't want you here. <laughs> Next milestone. With just two weeks left before college, I went to Bethel College. They received me. I went up from my, my buddy, Wendell Anderson, who was going up there. So I thought if it's good enough for him, good enough for me. I didn't know anything about it. We got to Bethel College. And there, I, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And I met a man by the name of Dick Anthony. Uh, and <laughs> we formed a, a college quartet there. Dick was a genius, <laughs> a real genius, a superb musician. And, uh, and so we had a college quartet and we were all represent the school in different churches. And then uh, in my sophomore year, Dick was only 16 years old when he was in sophomore in college. That's how pretty he was. Uh, one of the fellows in the quartet knew about an evangelist by the name of Jack Wordson. And so he said, uh, you know, we could send him a tape. He always wants to keep a male quartet. So I said, let's do it. We sent another tape. And my friend to, to meet, Bill Pazic, was still on staff there. And he listened to the tape and he told Jack Wordson, I think we can use these guys. So Jack invited us to go out and do his Word of Life quartet. It was just a fantastic thing. Another great, great, great milestone in my life. Um, I was with Jack for, for six years then. We had evangelistic meetings all over the country and in foreign countries. I was never in one evangelistic meeting where somebody was saved. That's a high bar. That's a real high bar. But yet, to me, Jack's biggest asset was his daily walk with the Lord. It's just fantastic. I've never met anybody who had his kind of a walk before the Lord. I remember when Don Wilson, his son, was only 16. You remember uh, Mark Twain said when he was only 16, he had never met a more ignorant man in the world than his father. And then when Mark Twain became, became 24 years of age, he said, I marvel at how much my dad learned in almost eight years. <laughs> at 16, Don Wilson told me once, you know, Rocky, I guess I've never met a man who walks more perfectly in the ways of the Lord than my dad. And I thought, oh, Lord, if you give me a wife, if you give me children, may they say just that much about me what I've just heard. What a testimony. Well, I didn't make it to Jack's funeral years later, but they sent me a tape. The funeral lasted three hours. Did you know that? It three hours. And it was testimony after testimony after testimony how God used Jack to take different people way beyond their wildest dreams. And he did that with me. Our, our, our first, first day of Word of Life camp, he had five Word of Life camps. And we all had jobs besides singing in the quartet. I, was a, I had a lifeguard certificate, so I became a lifeguard. My first day at, on the island there, down on the beach, Jack came and talked to me. He said, do you know how to water ski? I said, no, never done it. He said, well, learn how fast because you're going to teach it this summer. <laughs> <laughs> So it wasn't long, I was on the, the top man of the pyramid on Wednesday when we had the water carnival. <laughs> and that was his testimony of everybody in his funeral. It took them way beyond where they thought they could go. Well, my next milestone was when I met this cute gal down here with the blonde hair. With Jack Wilson, we had a meeting in her church on Flushing, Long Island. And from the platform, I noticed I could see the glow of that beautiful blonde down there. 
And I said, Lord, allow me to meet her afterwards. <laughs> so afterward, I did meet her. I invited her out. She accepted. We won't go into that. <laughs> but we did off and on for four years. She had a lot of boyfriends. I had a lot of girlfriends, I'll confess. <laughs> but I only proposed to one. Several proposed to her. <laughs> but she chose me. <laughs> so after four years, uh, on New Year's Eve, I took her to a friend's house up in Suffern, New York. It was bitter cold outside. Just before the stroke of midnight, I invited her to go outside. And there in the coldest side, I said, I'm not sure what God has for me in my life, but I sure would like you to be alone. Would you be my wife? And she said in the cold, yes, now let's go inside. <laughs> so I went inside and I said, no, you only have two options. We can be married in 17 days or four months. But I have a series of meetings lined up in churches with deputation. You take, it's, it's your choice. She said pretty fast. 17 days. <laughs> so we were married in 17 days. <laughs> the next milestone was when we went down to Costa Rica for language school. Um, we didn't speak Spanish, but we went to language school and it was a congregational, it was a conversational approach with there, we met with groups of about uh, six to 12 people with one professor and we would we'd converse. And we had a great variety in, in our class. Uh, there was one other missionary couple there. But there was one gal who couldn't pronounce her R's. You know, in Spanish, you have to be able to say, Enrique Rojas viaja por el ferrocarril. You have to be able to throw your R's like that. There was one girl, she couldn't do it. And the, the teacher worked and worked and worked, or they couldn't do it. And finally, one, one morning, we came to class, and, and the teacher asked that girl, tell me, when you were a little girl, did you have a, a, a toy car? Yeah. What noise did you make for the motor? The girl thought for a minute and she said, but, 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 but. She never learned how to trill her hours. <laughs> Next milestone, we went to Argentina. And there in Coto, Argentina, we wondered how we were going to meet our next door neighbors to begin to witness to them. Oh, yeah. Well, our one year old baby boy, Bruce, took care of the whole thing. One afternoon, he waddled out of our yard and into their, into their house, stark naked. <laughs> they received him, and they became great friends, and we became great friends, and it wasn't long before he was calling them abuelito and abuelita, uh, grandpa and grandma, yeah, yeah. since his grandma and grandpa were up in the United States. Uh, there in Cordoba, uh, we, Bill Fasey had told me, you should, you should, keep in touch and make touch with three young men in Argentina who are, have a lot of potential. One of these was a man by the name of Luis Palau. Uh, he worked in the bank at the time as a teller. So I met Luis and we went out on meetings together. And when I heard him preach, I thought, this guy shouldn't be a bank teller. He needs to be preaching. So we had a number of crusades and one was in the, a suburb of the town of Cordoba. We met in a tent there. First, we had meetings for the kiddies, and then we shooed them out and told them to go get mommy and daddy and shoot them in. So a good, good number of people were saved. And it was sponsored by a, a church way across town. So during the time there, um, I noticed that one of the members from across town, who lived right close by, began to build a garage. 
And I said, what, why are you building a garage? You don't have a car. Cars are very expensive in Argentina. He said, I don't have a car, but this is a new church being formed here. They need a place to meet. They're going to meet in my garage. So they did. <laughs> Five years later, we returned to Cordoba. We had a meeting in the big Coliseum there. And that man came to me one night and he said, guess what? Our church has grown. We now have our own church building. And guess what else? God has given me a car for my garage. <laughs> well, another milestone in my life was when I received the invitation to go up to HCJV in Quito, Ecuador, the pioneering missionary broadcaster formed in the year 1931. It was a real privilege. So I went up there. They wanted me to be involved in programming, which I had done uh, with Word of Life. And so we became quite involved. And then we started a program. I noticed that they had all these programs going out in 19 different <clears throat> languages, but relatively few people were being saved. And Jack had raised the bar so high that I, I'm not happy unless people are being saved. So I asked the session, can you give me a program that every morning uh, that can be used to reach out to the audience and to be used to, to uh, to kind of drum up crusades and send the word out, we're ready. So they said, sure. They gave me the best spot after the most listened to program at eight o'clock in the morning. So I started the program and invitations started coming in for crusades and then we would go out for crusades. And every time I would come back and on Friday staff meeting, I'd give a report to all the people who were saying, they were so delighted. They'd never heard this type of salvation before. Utterly delighted. Well, during that our time, I received a letter from the city of Cerro de Pasco in Lima, Peru. Uh, excuse me, in, in the country of Peru. Lima is at sea level. Cerro de Pasco is 15,000 wow. feet below above sea level. When you travel in a small plane, you turn on the oxygen at 12, at 7,000 feet. This is 15,000 feet. So we arrived there. They had a reception committee at the airport in Lima. We took an old rickety bus eight hours up those winding mountains roads. And people often get headaches because they have to do it. I got one. We finally arrived at Santa Rosa Pasco. It was cold. They had another reception committee about 100 people waiting for us. They had all kinds of stories to tell us. Uh, one of the stories they said, you know, two of our leaders were, were arrested two days ago for just giving out invitations to the, to the meetings here. And they were thrown in jail. Who happened to be in town with the first evangelical center, Jose Ferreira? And the local people told Senator Ferreira about the leaders of the club who had been thrown in jail. He said, this cannot be. He take me down to the police station. So they did. He said, I want to see the sheriff. They called him the sheriff. He said, Sheriff, you put two men in, in jail for distributing gospel literature. This is against the law. I personally was personally was responsible for changing the law in Peru. We have freedom of religion here. You let these men out before I throw you in. <laughs> so, uh, well, it was cold in several of the It snowed three times when we were there. Wow. They took us up into the fourth story of a church there in the attic where we were going to, going to sleep. Uh, no heat whatsoever. Oh, a, a friend, mission turned around, gave me two sets of long, long johns. We put them on when we, we got there, put on our suits, put on our top coats, didn't take off anything all the time there. It was bitter cold. But they treated us like kings. It was just utterly fantastic. But, what God did there. Um, we got together with the six pastors. There was only one full-time pastor 
the rest were part-time pastors. They said, you know, we have never had a United Evangelist Crusade here. We really didn't know how to uh, accommodate things and make all the preparations. Uh, you must forgive us for our shortcomings. But ever since you said you'd come six months ago, we've had a prayer meeting every night wow, good. for six months. Good. They said, please forgive us. We know we haven't done enough. <laughs> then they said, we read further in the Bible and said, if you really want God to answer, you not only pray, but you fast. So all six churches of us, on the first Sunday of every month, we have prayed and we fasted for six months. Please forgive us not, for not doing enough. We began to feel smaller and smaller. Yeah. <laughs> they said, we decided we should print out some invitations. We only printed 50,000 invitations. There were only 26,000 people in that town. That's two for every person. I said, please forgive us. <laughs> they are poorest church mites. They only live there because there's work. They have mines there. They mine every kind of metal available. These poor people gave us an offering, a love offering, $600. It was an ultimate sacrifice. It was just fantastic. We met in the Miners Union Hall. It was the normally the, the place of communistic activities. There were seats for 700 people. Every night there were a thousand out. And it was so interesting for the ushers. They picked the biggest brutes they could find. And they put a big armband on that said, disciplinario, disciplinarian. <laughs> and these guys walked up and down the aisles for the entire service. Some of them said, Lucasate. We had perfect discipline. <laughs> <laughs> well, when everything was said and done, 255 people received God into their heart. The father and a brother were one of the pastors there. The sister and brother-in-law of the president of the Communist Union there. It was just great what God did. Three months later, we went to another town in Peru. And during the time of the settlement in Moscow, they gave us one man who slept in the room adjoining ours. They said, if you have any problems, pound on the wall. Some people suffer because of a lack of oxygen. He'll run for a doctor. During the daytime, they gave us a young couple to take care of us. And the name of that husband was Saul Trinidad. Three months later, he hopped the bus because he heard the, the crusade announcements on the video. He appeared and he said, here I am. What can I do? <laughs> And during this time there, I recorded an interview to play played back later in the radio program. And I, I said, how, uh, how, how are those new people in Christ coming? He said, oh, they're coming crazy. They're, they're forming, a, right, forming a body of the church. And he told me something else that I, I had not known. He said, you know, one month before you fellas came, this was Luis Palau's first evangelist, United Crusade. <laughs> one month before you guys came, another missionary came. And he said in Spanish, he preached one time and he ceased to exist. He died because of the lack of oxygen. So he said a good group of us prayed into the wee hours of the morning after the crusade meeting. The same thing wouldn't happen to you. <laughs> and I thank him profusely for his prayers. <laughs> well, God bless you in a very unusual way in Sunday in Moscow. It was a milestone. Another milestone, I had never heard this story before at all. But for years, one of our supporting churches was Briarwood Presbyterian Church in, in Birmingham, Alabama. If you're acquainted with it, it's one of the finest churches in the country. Just fantastic. I have from 5,000 to 7,000 members. 
And I used to go regularly to the missionary conference. One missionary conference, they made the announcement that they supported about 40 missionary organizations. And they said, we have an excess in our missionary budget, an excess of $15,000. I've never heard that before. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> never. They said, we want to use this excess of 15000 toward three projects. So we're asking all of you to send in a project. Well, I asked them to sponsor a crusade in Costa Rica. And they said, we're going to accept you. You're going to be one of the three. And then they plugged me into a sister church in, in Chattanooga. And I spoke there and missionary, met with their missionary committee. They doubled it to thirty thousand wow, dollars. What was going to be a citywide crusade turned it into a countrywide crusade. Wow, All seven provinces of Costa Rica. It was just fantastic. The groups in every in every province were too big for any church, so we met outside on every occasion. It was great to see what God did. The last meeting was held in a baseball stadium in in the city of San Jose, Costa Rica. One of the guys in our team said, "In Latin America." Long-range planning means the day after tomorrow. <laughs> that was true for the baseball set. They didn't complete the contract until two days before the meeting. <laughs> but they got it. The place was filled. And during that time in Costa Rica, we saw 1,506 people saved into the family of God. It was a real milestone. It was fantastic. Now I've got a PS to everything. When we arrived in Argentina, in my first years there, I picked up the morning paper. The picture said, United States Navy Band to present a concert in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I marked on the date. I said, no, I'm not going to miss this one. <laughs> the day before, I picked up the paper. And the front page, once again, it says, plane transporting the United States Navy Band going from Chile to Argentina crashes in the mountains, no survivors. It hit me never. Now I knew why God had said no that day in the motel room in Washington, D.C. I would have been on the plane. I would have never met Margie. We would have four children. We would be here today. I was so thankful that I was obedient to the words of God. So very, very thankful. So, this is my challenge to you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Talk to them about milestones in your life, how God has done things like that. And rehearse to them how God has done great things, and these are the stones God has put in my life. I like this phrase, thinking back that day in the hotel in Washington, D.C., God gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Whatever. The decision is God's choice is the best choice. Well, I want to thank you for standing with me for so many, many years. We were in City Fox, aren't you remember? Yeah. It's City Fox. Uh, I, I, I want to say, many gracias. Thank you very much for all you've done. You're a part of everything you've heard. So God bless you. Thank you.